This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The cost of living and people getting squeezed out of neighborhoods, these are huge issues. And they've even played into the Denver teachers' strike. We heard this earlier in the week from Rachel Sandoval, a fifth-grade teacher. I live in Denver. I have three roommates. There is an adjunct professor, a nurse, and a teacher. That sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke because not a one of us can live in Denver independently without each other. Our neighborhood is being gentrified. We have lost 50-plus students every single year because they're moving out of our area. They can't afford it. Denver's rate of gentrification is one of the highest in the country. When areas suddenly become desirable to folks who don't already live there, developers and people with higher incomes move in while others get displaced. Is gentrification a foregone conclusion when cities grow? Can you strike a balance? These are some of the big questions we're going to explore in today's show. Jeremy Namath is an urban planner at CU Denver, and he just did a study on gentrification predicting it and preventing its worst effects. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You say that your study debunks the argument that gentrification is an uncontrollable consequence of market forces. I guess, first off, talk to me about that assumption, which I guess you think is widely held, that gentrification is somehow inevitable. Yeah, you know, I hear more and more uh, sort of policymakers, elected officials, etc., saying, you know, they're, they're, they sort of fall back on this kind of trope of, you know, that's this is the market. This is just what we do, you know, and, and, and what can we do to stop it? And and to that, I would say, you know, in fact, we create the market through our policymaking, right? It's about whether we and the public officials, the, the elected officials, have that sort of political will um, to fund the strategies that we know keep people in place. And so the study is really about sort of what are those things that keep people in place? Okay, and we'll dive into the details for sure. But what I hear you saying is that when politicians, I think of the mayor's race coming up in Denver, for example, when politicians say this is a foregone conclusion, you'd like to put an asterisk next to that and say, don't be so certain. That's right. Yeah. And I think that that for, you know, it, it is about political will. It is also about sort of on the ground strategies. And, and I think a lot of the work that's being done in Denver is um, is thoughtful. I think we're coming around to the fact that that um, uh, that this is really an, a housing issue more than anything else. And it's something that um, we found in our study. Um, but, you know, back to the sort of political will, you know, we know that about one percent of housing units in Denver right now are uh, what we would call public housing. And um and not to, uh, you know, give the European models, but in Paris, this number is about 25 to 30 percent. In Vienna, it's 60 percent. And these are these are world class cities, right? Public housing is not a bad thing necessarily. So I think we have to sort of say, you know, who are we as a city? What kind of city do we want to become? And I, I think it's about time to have that conversation. Not to make this overly political, but I can imagine people hearing what you've just told us <laughs> and saying, oh, OK, this is someone who wants to thwart the free market and have a bunch of government intervention. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, we're in a position, the city of Denver, that we haven't been in in the last couple of decades where we're in this sort of pole position to really control the kind of development that we want. We're not you know, scratching and clawing for the next developer to come in and build some some um, flashy unit. You know, I think we're, we're, we're at a place where and in a, in a time 
when um, when developers really want to be here and we can extract um, some of that <laughs> some, some of their desire and 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 say hey we're going to require more affordable housing from you than we currently do Denver is not in a desperate place that's what right. you're saying it has some power right. to wield okay Jeremy let's pause our conversation for a moment to get an example of what's happening in one Denver community this comes from CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Residents of Northeast Denver find seats at a community housing meeting. At the front of the room is a group of women in bright pink shirts, which read, La vida es más sabrosa, life is more flavorful, in Globeville and Elyria, Swansea. Tonight we're here as a collective to discuss many of the changes in our community. This meeting was put together by the Globeville Elyria Swansea Coalition, a group of residents trying to fight displacement in their neighborhoods. The community is mostly Latino, and incomes here are much lower than Denver's average. The evening started with a speech from Reverend Timothy Tyler of Shorter Community AME. We stand here tonight on the backs and in the tradition of people of color in Denver who refuse to say there's nothing that we can do. These neighborhoods are some of Denver's oldest, with industrial roots that predate the 1900s. Early immigrant settlers worked in smelters, the stockyards, and railroads. There aren't a lot of sidewalks here, and the single-family houses are small and older. But the area is about to drastically change. The city has planned a massive redevelopment that includes a rebuild of the National Western Complex, Brighton Boulevard, and several new RTD light rail stops. There's also the state's $1.2 billion project to expand I-70. These changes have suddenly made the area very desirable and vulnerable to gentrification. Reverend Tyler continues. It is important that you join in this effort so that homeowners are treated equitably and that this community is not killed. Developers building a massive two-block mixed-income housing complex in the area came to this meeting, and the GES coalition read aloud a community benefits agreement. The coalition wants the developers, the Urban Land Conservancy and Columbia Ventures, to sign this agreement. It asks for a number of things, like more affordable units big enough for families. They want preference for apartments and retail spaces to local residents and business owners. They want more say in the project. Then they ask the developers if they'd sign it. Both Columbia Ventures and the Urban Land Conservancy respond they'd be willing to once the details are negotiated. The Urban Land Conservancy is a nonprofit. They bought the six industrial acres in 2015, partly with a loan from the city, after the area was targeted for its need of affordable housing. With all the redevelopment, property values are going up. Rent is going up. Almost the entire neighborhood is at risk of displacement. That's Nola Miguel, the director of the GES Coalition. She says, of course, the community wants affordable housing. But what they don't want... A prepackaged development. We're asking for an equitable and a transformative project where the community might be involved in a different way than what they're used to. Miguel says there's mistrust of development in the GES community. The mid-century construction of I-70 left the neighborhood divided and polluted. It was labeled a Superfund site by the EPA because of the smelting plants that used to be there. She says there's fear that if the community doesn't speak up now, more development will cause more harm. And that if this project isn't done right, it will just cause displacement. They're not just going to change without the real impacted neighbors being involved in a meaningful way. The developers have held many community meetings about the project, and the coalition has gone to all of them. 
but to felt heard, Miguel said they had to host their own. Let's hear you make these commitments to us, and let's hear your responses in a public place. The coalition's work has prompted the developers to make changes to the first phase of the project. Originally, it was 100 units. Now it's 150. They'll be affordable, some very affordable. A three-bedroom would cost about $700 a month. Erin Clark is with the Urban Land Conservancy. She says the group is trying to listen to the needs of the community. We're doing what we can with this project to meet as many objectives as we can, but we can't meet everything. Once the affordable apartments are built, next comes the market rate ones. Columbia's agreement is to keep just over half of the total units affordable. That means they could build 149 more and lease them for the going price. That's what the coalition is really worried about. Clark understands, but says it's those apartments that help pay for the affordable ones. Part of the tension, I think, has been just, yes, we as ULC intervene in the marketplace, but we're not immune to market forces. Members of the Globeville Illyria Swansea Coalition meet at their neighborhood library a few days after the meeting with the developers. Gabby Acevedo was brought to the U.S. as a child and has lived in the area for more than 10 years. She's married, has two kids, and most of her extended family lives in the neighborhood, too. I think that's why I am too attached to the community. In Illyria Swansea, 46% of renters spend more than the recommended one-third of their income on housing. Acevedo rents a home that her mother-in-law owns, so she has a good deal. But some landlords are cashing in on the gentrification, charging higher rents or selling to developers or people with higher incomes. It's a scenario playing out in several of Denver's poorest neighborhoods. Acevedo says she joined the coalition to help protect her family and community. It's hurting all of us. The coalition has their own community land trust, funded by a $2 million grant from CDOT because of the disruption caused by the widening of I-70. They're building a couple affordable properties with the money, which the coalition realizes isn't much. They're working to start a database of all the people who've been displaced to reconnect them to housing when it becomes available. And they're putting together a fund to help people with pre-eviction legal costs. There's a lot of anxiety going on. That's Yadita Sanchez. She's a single mom with three kids. She's lived in the Globeville, Illyria, Swansea area for more than 15 years. Her family owns a restaurant and bakery, and Sanchez is afraid business will suffer with the I-70 construction. She says it's depressing. Other people see this as their work zone and their project. And this is, this is where, where our happy place is, which is not very happy anymore. The coalition knows this is a big fight. Denver did a study on gentrification in the city. Its first finding, there's no single solution for, quote, a city to benefit from neighborhood revitalization while avoiding involuntary displacement. So the city has started working on many fronts to mitigate the impacts. There are days when Sanchez wonders if sticking around is worth it. But then she thinks about the community and what it means to her. The culture makes her feel like she belongs. She doesn't want that to go away. Why does better mean move? Why does better mean it's not for you? Why is it not for the people in this community already? Like, why? Why Why can't it be? She realizes that Globeville and Illyria Swansea will soon look very different. And there's no stopping that. What she and the coalition are fighting for, she says, is what that future will look like. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. So we've been listening to that story with Jeremy Namath. He's an associate professor of urban and regional planning at CU Denver, and he's just done a study of gentrification. And Jeremy, uh, fundamentally, do you think gentrification is all bad? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say it depends on on really who you are, but um, I think you know early on in neighborhoods when when gentrification um, starts to happen, you know, people see better restaurants, services, maybe some new bike lanes, better transit because of higher densities. But for for the housing cost burdened, the the, the people who are paying more than thirty percent of their income on housing, um, which is more than half of Denver's residents, by the way, um, you know, I I think those are short lived benefits, and 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 what what is at first exciting becomes very worrisome. Um, and then, you know, I think secondly, you know, uh, something I hear a lot is that homeownership, um, uh, homeowners, low-income homeowners um, in these, in these neighborhoods are able to sell out and, and sort of make a killing on their property as, as, uh, as um, the, the property values increase. And I think yeah. that's a really rare uh, exception to the rule. In some cases, I think global Illyria Swansea, homeownership rates are around 10%, 15%. Um, so that's a, that's a very rare thing. That is, it's mostly renters who that's are right. being displaced. That's saying. right. Yep. Okay. Uh, and that word displacement, we heard um, that a lot in Michael Elizabeth Sackis' story. With that, there's the physical displacement, but there's also, as you find, the mental, the emotional toll that that takes. Will Absolutely. you just speak to that? Absolutely. I think that's such an important thing, and you hear it loud and clear in the story, that that there's this deep, and, and, and there's so much research that's coming out about these sort of persistent, multi-generational impacts of, of the sort of psychological displacement in terms of negative mental and even physical health outcomes. Um, there's some medical doctors working in this, in this area, looking at the legacy of urban and renewal back in the 50s and 60s and how that just like reverberates through generations and generations. And uh, I have a school teacher friend in, on the west side of Denver um, who, who said his students talk about this and, and, and he teaches freshmen in high school. And, and, um, and so this is on their minds, you know, and, and, and it, it permeates sort of everyday life. In our coverage of displacement, it has come to light that this isn't something that necessarily happens just once, but families may be displaced two and three times and put Pushed further and further away, one to neighborhoods they're connected to, and two perhaps to their jobs. Right, right, and I think that's a really important thing. Um, yeah, Jeremy, you identify early warning signs that a neighborhood is about to gentrify. You have tested this in Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Washington D.C. Give us examples of early warning signs. Yeah, I mean, I think if we, if you sort of close your eyes and think of one of those places where um, you say, gosh, this, this just has so much potential, right, to be the next sort of it place, the next sort of hip place. I think there's two things that come up. One is physically what we identified is that a lot of these places have what we call good bones, right? The sort of really great old historic single family housing stock. Uh, They're close to transit. They're close to jobs. They're close to downtowns. They're walkable. And then socioeconomically, the residents are mostly vulnerable. Lots of renters, lots of uh, low-income residents. Uh, Education levels are generally low. Uh, Lots of people of color as well. And when you identify these, then you can work ahead of time to perhaps uh, mitigate the the worst effects of gentrification. I, I know that to some extent, the city of Denver, for instance, already tries to figure out what neighborhoods are about to explode mm-hmm. and how they might involve themselves in keeping the folks already there there. So what is it that you hope to do with what you've found Prediction-wise, I think that what we found is that once we see that a place is gentrifying, it's 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 probably too late to stop it in any meaningful way. Oh, um, and and I think that 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 doesn't mean that we shouldn't throw 
all our chips on the table and do a sort of all hands on deck approach, which is, I think, what the the uh, GES coalition is, is is helping to do. The city is really trying to do. Um, but I think that, you know, identifying places on the cusp of gentrification, I would say in Denver, I think we should really, really be careful about the west side of Denver, the sort of Athmar Park, Ruby Hill, Barnum, Westwood. I think there's a lot of reasons why that's a vulnerable place. And there happens to be a lot of first generation immigrants who've been historically disenfranchised, right, and feel that they have very little power, perhaps, to fight back. How does race, how does ethnicity play into this? Because those displaced are often disproportionately people of color, correct? That's right. Yeah. I mean, in the U.S. at least, there's um, we know that race and class are sort of tightly bound together and and gentrifiers in our in our study are most often white, whereas the, the gentrified are most often often people of color, even though the, ge- the definition of gentrification is is really a class based definition. It's about the gentry coming in and displacing, you know, so the sort of the middle class coming in and displacing the working class. There's, you know, race and ethnicity are obviously bound up in that definition. So is it that you want leaders of cities, maybe across the country and around the world to look at these predictors and get involved earlier. That's right. Yeah. And, and really target interventions. We don't have we have a limited amount of funds to this uh, to, to put toward this. And and I think we should be really prioritizing those places um, that 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 are on the cusp of gentrification, really focusing on on housing, on um, on some of the things that the GES coalition is really supporting. Those are, these are these are really innovative techniques, community land trusts. Uh, community organizing itself has been shown to uh, to stave off some of those most damaging effects in Chicago, in L.A., etc. GES again, Globeville, Elyria, Swansea, and north part of Denver. But, you know, I'll say that these pressures are playing out elsewhere in Colorado as well. We've seen huge growth, for instance, down to Colorado Springs. Yeah, so this isn't just an urban phenomenon, and and uh, particularly as as there's been this back to the city movement, right? People are sort of exp- uh, you know um, uh, finding the city again as uh, both as developers and as residents who want to be back in that kind of urban core. And what that's left is this um, uh, less dense suburban region, a sort of hollowed out region in a lot of ways, which is being filled by some of those people who are being displaced from the city itself. Okay. Anything more to say about these predictors? Like, I don't know, if I'm a mayor somewhere or a city council person or just someone in my neighborhood who might be concerned, uh, you know, it can just feel a little squishy. Okay, I'm near transit and this feels like it's about to take off. Mm-hmm. Can we be more precise about the predictors? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 what we see is that there are certain sort of hallmarks of, of vulnerable neighborhoods. The number one thing is really about uh, the people. We talk about people and place in this study. Um, and, and actually, uh, what we found is that some of the, the most diverse neighborhoods, and what I mean by diverse is not 95% African-American or 95% Hispanic or Latino, okay. but when there's a mix of different residents, um, that those are actually some of the most vulnerable um, places. And a lot of that comes from sort of racial biases that, that we don't want to um, be the sort of avant-garde, the first residents of a neighborhood where we are very different from the dominant sort of group there. Um, so I would say that's another, you know, that's a specific factor that we really found is the more diverse, the more groups, racial and ethnic groups that are represented there, the more vulnerable a neighborhood is, for example. That's fascinating. So if a neighborhood, let's say, is 95% African-American mm-hmm. or 95% percent 
Latino. The idea is that, let's say, white people would be less hesitant to be the kind of first white family on the block. Right, right. Or more hesitant. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Less more likely, hesitant. Right. Less likely to do it. Mm. And yeah. Okay. Why don't we spend the last few minutes uh, this half hour talking about potential solutions? So the idea of a land trust, would just say a few more words about that and whether there's any evidence to suggest that works? Yeah, there's, a, there's actually a really recent study um, out of Texas A&M University that looked at how community land trusts um, actually do have a positive impact controlling for all of these other variables. And what are they, land trusts? Explain that. Uh, they're, they're essentially these, these non-profits that are set up to kind of ensure long-term, long-term housing affordability. Um, so the, the, the trust is a non-profit uh, that will buy and uh, sort of acquire land and maintain ownership of that that. Uh, that that piece of land permanently, and then it basically leases um, uh, to homeowners instead of you know using sort of traditional sales. And so when the homeowner then sells the property, the family only keeps a portion of that increased property value as opposed to taking it all. And so it keeps keeps land affordable for future low income families. What about another idea that's kind of thinking outside the box? Uh, you know, some of the things that actually the city has started on right these anti eviction ordinances property tax rebates, we found that those do work um, in, in, in other cities, as well as rent control, which um, is, I think, illegal in Colorado. Um, and something of a third rail it is, politically. It is, very much so. But these things have worked in other cities, and, and I think it becomes um, a question of, of political will. Um, in the end, right, I think a lot that the city of Denver is doing is on the right track, but I think we need to foreground sort of prediction, um, or we're, we're going to be sort of chipping away around the edges. You have this desire to spot gentrification earlier and earlier. Thank you, Jeremy, for being with us. Absolutely. Jeremy Namath is an associate professor of urban and regional planning at CU Denver. His research identifies the predictors of gentrification and suggests ways to keep it in check. A new list of the state's most endangered places has just come out, and it includes the R&R Market in the San Luis Valley, which happens to be the state's oldest continually operated business. The owners want to retire, but aren't sure who will take over. CPR's Nathaniel Miner visited the store just a few years ago. It's a quiet afternoon at the R&R Market, a grocery and hardware store in San Luis, Colorado. Esther Manzanares is shopping for dinner. She's lived near this town of 600 for decades. It's about 20 miles north of the New Mexico border. The next grocery store is nearly an hour away. This store means a lot because you don't have to make a 45-mile trip to go buy a pound of hamburger or something that you need right then and there. You just come here and he practically has everything that you need. And it's been like this for a long time. In 1857, Dario Gallegos opened the store. It burned down twice, though an original wall survived and is in the back of the store today. Felix Romero is Dario Gallegos' great-great-grandson. Back in 1969, Felix and his wife Claudia were about to graduate from college when his dad made him an offer. He asked us if we wanted to come down and and run the business. He says, uh, I'll do it in partnership with you if, if you decide to do it. So we did. Forty-some years later, we're still here. Forty-seven and a half years, to be exact. Claudia remembers the date they took over, December 1st, 1969. Now, they live in an apartment just upstairs from the store. And it's, it's been good, but it's also been hard. 
It's been hard to stay in business this many years. San Luis can be a tough place to make a living. It's in one of the poorest counties in the country. Who knows, maybe there'll be a boom here one of these days. Yeah, right. We've been waiting since 69 for the boom. (laughs) But people look out for each other here. The same families, mostly Hispanic and Catholic, have lived here for generations. Ranches and crops like potato and barley surround the town, which is the oldest in the state. Felix and Claudia have given lines of credit to customers who need it. Felix says they're always paid back. And last winter, they made deliveries to an elderly woman who was snowed in. She lives out in the county, near the Rio Grande. She was out of propane. She was only using wood heat. Uh, She was out of cat food, dog food. They had to carry in her food and fuel in gunny sacks because the roads were so mushy. Deliveries can take a lot of effort. But it's things like that that have made the R&R market indispensable to many local residents. Felix takes pride in his community, but it's changing. A chain discount store recently opened on the edge of town. Felix can't stand the corporate ownership. Most people don't spend a dime in this community. They don't spend a dime. And that's a big deal. High unemployment means many local kids leave when they graduate high school. The county's population has ticked up a little recently, but many of those new residents live off the grid and like to be left alone. People still shop at the chain store and at the Walmart in Alamosa, but Felix points out that the R&R is there when you need a gallon of milk or a box of nails. Meanwhile, Claudia and Felix aren't getting any younger. They've been looking for someone in the family to take over the store. They say, oh, you guys, you don't get out of the store. You've got to keep it in the family. You've got to keep it in the family. But that's, you know, as far as it goes. Keeping it in the family is really important to these two especially Felix. I hate to be the one to break tradition. I really do. But I can't spend the rest of my life here either. And I'm at that age where I've got to make some hard decisions. And uh, I want to make them. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. All right, let's talk about the future of the R&R market and other endangered places in Colorado with Kim Grant of Colorado Preservation, Inc., Kim, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks. For, for those of us who haven't been, describe what the market looks like when you walk up to it, would you? It's a two-story territorial adobe building, a beautiful building with red tile roof, and uh, there are um, apartments upstairs that were part of an old hotel. It has a stucco exterior with real colorful signage and beautiful blue front doors. So it's not just a question of saving the the operation, but also of, it sounds like, the building the operation is housed in. Well, the building's not going to fall down anytime soon, but this is a classic example of what we call a legacy business that has a certain character and identity that's really um, important for the community as a whole. You can find these in a neighborhood in an urban area or in a small town like San Luis. So is your interest simply nostalgic? Is it also economic? Help us understand why this made the list. It's both because um, there is an important heritage associated with the building and the Romeros and the family going way back to the time of Dario Gallegos. But also, um, if it were to close, there would be a direct economic impact to the community with the loss of fresh food and um products that are sold from local ranches, and also the hardware component as well. So will your goal to be to find new owners? We would like to help Felix and Claudia find new owners and um, ideally find somebody from the community who knows the area and can relate to the people in the community. And do you think you'll have better luck than they've had <laughs> trying to find this mysterious person? Well, it's a challenge. It's... it's um, 
it's a classic story of, of business succession and family-owned businesses, and it's hard sometimes, particularly in a struggling rural area, to keep them going. But um, I think there's a lot of interest in helping them, and, and CPI would like to do so. We'll talk about some of the other sites on your endangered list in a moment, but I, I wonder how you choose what is most at risk in this state. It varies depending on the resource in question. It can be um, weather and climatic things in the mountains. It could be development pressures on the front range. It could be abandonment and neglect in a rural area. Um, so the threat varies depending on the resource. Okay. Let's move on to another site, or I should say sites, uh, also interestingly in the San Luis Valley of southern Colorado. I think not many people know about these, but you're trying to preserve a special kind of potato cellar. Yes, the adobe potato cellars or barns of the San Luis um, Valley um, are part of the the historic potato farming and production economy in the area. And uh, we think there may be as many as 100 of them. They're, they're real easy to drive by and not notice them necessarily. But once you see them, you see them all over on the landscape. I think that people associate potatoes with Idaho. Colorado, it turns out, is actually and has been historically a huge potato producer, much yes. of it concentrated in this area. Mm-hmm. What is it like inside these cellars? Well, they're dark and they're cool and they're sort of naturally climate controlled because they're built out of adobe, sometimes with a double wall with an air pocket between. And um, a few of them are cellars that are literally below the ground where the water table permits. And others are more like barn structures above ground, rectangular, um, built out of adobe with stucco finishes, and sometimes have either earthen roofs or uh, low-pitched wooden roofs. They almost sound like hobbit dwellings to me. <laughs> I have to say that I stayed in an Airbnb in Del Norte, Colorado. I was down there for the Crane Festival in nearby Monte Vista, and our hosts were renovating potato cellars into rooms to rent. And as you say, they were so naturally cool because of their kind of closeness to the earth. What makes these threaten, these cellars? Well, weatherization over time, because of the materials they were built with, they're starting to deteriorate. A lot of them are on private land, and some landowners you know, understand the heritage behind the the structures and are trying to preserve them. But others have, you know, just declined over time. They're literally crumbling and falling apart. Is your hope to, like, save all 100 or just have a good 20? <laughs> you We'd know? like to do um, kind of a reconnaissance survey to understand the different building typologies. And then we'd like to work with property owners to save representative examples of the different types of sellers. How is the potato business these days in the Valley? I think it's pretty good. Um, I think it's also a major uh, national and international business. And interestingly enough, they also have a potato festival in Monte Vista, which is kind of a fun thing in the oh, So summer. it's not just cranes no, down there. It's also no. potatoes. Okay. Let's talk briefly about the other sites that made the list. Your choice where to begin. Um, The McIntyre Ranch and Mansion is, uh, again, an adobe ruin connected to Florence and Albert McIntyre. Albert was the governor of Colorado, and they built the house in the 1880s. And uh, it's in real rough shape, too. It's also in the San Luis Valley. And then we're also adding host company number three, Firehouse and Pueblo, which was the third um, 
fire company to be unionized under the International Association of Firefighters. Anywhere in the country, you mean? Yes, behind uh, Pittsburgh and New Orleans. And, and so they were real proud of that. This is a firehouse? It's a in museum words, today, uh-huh. and it was a firehouse until the late 70s, and it's operated as a museum today. And what about it is threatened? Um, the building is, is declining, and um, they don't have the resources to you know properly repair it and restore it. And it's operated by volunteers, so we'd like to help them a little bit with their capacity to get open more often and also uh, generate revenue to save the building. Okay, I've lost count. Have we gotten to everything on the list? Um, the last one is oh, a really yes. important okay. one, the Iglesia de San Antonio Tiffany Catholic Church down near Durango along the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. And it is um, the last vestige of a Hispano settlement in the little town of Tiffany. Describe what it looks like for us. It's a beautiful, um, a, again, adobe church, one story with a, a pitched roof and a, and a wooden um, steeple. And um, it's beautiful inside, absolutely beautiful inside. What's your track record for saving places before we go? Well, we have 125 sites. We've saved 47 of them, and about 44 of them are in progress. And then 25 are still on alert, including the newly listed sites. And then we've lost seven over 22 years. So this helps, but it is by no means a panacea. Kim, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Kim Grant leads Colorado's Most Endangered Places program. We started today's show talking about gentrification in Denver. And it's where we'd like to end, with an unusual approach to empowering young people. I checked out this particular nonprofit back in 2017, just after a coffee shop in Five Points had come under fire for bragging about happily gentrifying the neighborhood. And they said it was a joke, but to these community members, this is not a joke. Protests broke out. Today we visit a different coffee shop, not too far away, in another Denver neighborhood, where low-income people feel the squeeze. Globeville, Elyria, Swansea. May I have a, um, a vanilla latte? Prodigy Coffee House took over an old grease monkey. Its mission, to help young people in northeast Denver get work experience, especially ones who've struggled in school or other work environments. They spend a year as paid apprentices, learning not just to make coffee, but to connect with customers and co-workers. Apprentice Angel Martinez is 19. She says she never thought she'd be a barista, making lattes that cost three or four bucks. To me, when I thought of a coffee shop, I kind of thought of it being like this high-class atmosphere place, you know, where people come in and drink their little fancy drinks. The word prodigy, you know, the definition, it's a person, a young one, endowed with exceptional abilities. Prodigy co-founder Stephanie Francis. And we believe that there are those people in this community, especially those that are disengaged, that are prodigious. Francis sees coffee as a way to transform a neighborhood if these young people can apply the skills they learn in their own backyards. Imagine if they're the ones working for these developers or with these developers. They're the ones taking a, a lead role in um, you know, working with RTD, or they're the ones that are helping us make those decisions about how this community can benefit them as longtime residents and also new people who are coming here. So that it's not that gentrification is something that is simply happening to them. That's right. 
Another apprentice, 21-year-old Frankie Rodarte, says she's grateful someone saw potential in her. We didn't have to have experience or a resume. You know, they kind of just accepted us for who we were. That's a big deal. And that, that is. It really was for me, you know, especially because I was in the process of moving. You know, I just turned 19. I was really trying to take on a lot of responsibility. So for them to actually let me come in and show some competence and actually even just make money to learn something really made me happy. Rodarte was one of the first apprentices when the shop opened just over a year ago. Like her co-worker Angel Martinez, she says fancy coffee represented a new world for her. But she lived in the area and the bright murals on Prodigy's exterior caught her eye. I could honestly say that's what drug me in first, like all the f-ing, sorry, I don't mean to cuss. I like to cuss. I'm a cusser. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> And so you saw the bright building. I seen the bright building, and it drew me in. There was a bunch of volunteers outside. They were painting chairs. I came by, and they said that they were um, starting a new apprenticeship for the youth, you know, and it was nonprofit, and it was, you know, I was the right age, and it was a good fit for me. Angel, what brought you here? I was actually in a diversion program, which is for first-time offenders, And I came to the training, which was in mid-February of the beginning of this year. It was definitely a welcoming environment, so I definitely found, like, I kind of found my place here. Can I ask about the diversion aspect of your life? What what was in your background that led you to that? Um, I don't necessarily like to talk about the incident that happened. I just wasn't on a very good path at the time. Have you had hiccups along the way? Definitely. I had a hard time with some of my coworkers. We weren't really communicating too well, and we weren't really getting along. And I definitely learned that not everything is going to go your way in life, but you always have to kind of figure a way around it to make it better and make it better for the people around you. When you ran into that kind of conflict before Prodigy, yeah, how do you think you would have acted? Um... I was kind of a critical person before. I wasn't as nice as I am today. I think I didn't really have the communication skills. Frankie, you said that you're in the neighborhood here. Uh, Yeah, I'm actually in northeast Denver. I grew up here. Boy, I imagine you've seen some changes, huh? Yeah, not only having, you know, my neighbors move away to new neighbors to, you know, new businesses and old businesses getting shut down. And it really has been a drastic change. Do you have concerns about your own ability to stay in this neighborhood? Absolutely. Every day. You never know. You might wake up one day and the rent might be raised or you just don't belong anymore, you know, and it's hard to be able to strive and survive when you feel incompetent. Tell me about that. What do you mean? Not everybody's handed opportunity. And, you know, even though we live in the community, we're not very aware of all the resources because, you know, not everybody just lets us know. Do you resent some of the people who come in here? It's more sad than mad. I think that everybody's sadness turns into anger eventually. Sadness about how the neighborhood has changed, how 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 you don't feel necessarily a part of it? How it's not authentic as we think it should be. You know, it's not our culture. It's not our history. I feel like people are building on top of it. They're trying to grow, of course. You know, I'm not a person to judge. You know, I don't know how hard people work to start their businesses or how hard they work to get to Denver, you know, to be an entrepreneur. But at the same time, I feel like because of all the things that you went through and you're on top, you shouldn't shame me. 
or knock me down. You're Latina? Absolutely, yeah. What do you think you're going to do with the experience and, frankly, the money you're earning here? There is no telling. Do you have a dream? I have a dream to build my own empire. I don't want to try to be an overachiever. I don't want to try to be Wait, wait, wait. You want to build an empire. But I don't want to be an underachiever at the same time. You know, I just want to work at my own pace. I do. And just make sure that I'm a better person than I was yesterday. Frankie, what did you make of the fact that the business was run by white people? Um, my mom is white. She is. Honestly, it didn't really... I didn't think nothing of it. Hmm. You know, I just seen an opportunity in front of me and I went for it. Did you guys hear about the news with that coffee shop across town that had the sign happily gentrifying the neighborhood? Oh yeah, absolutely. I did. And I felt really offended. I don't think that's okay at all. And I don't know what made them think that that was okay. What in their right mind? And you could be so surprised by how many people that aren't really educated in this neighborhood, but they still know what gentrification is. Angel, what did you think when you saw that sign? Um, I was pretty surprised, to be honest, because I've been in, into Ink Coffee Shop, and I really liked it. But when I saw that and when I heard about it, I really thought that you have to be really close-minded just to be able to put that out there for advertisement and just think that it's going to be okay for everybody. Angel Martinez and Frankie Rodarte are apprentices at Prodigy Coffee House, a nonprofit in Denver's Globeville, Elyria, Swansea neighborhood. Coffee is such a charged symbol right now in Denver, a sign of gentrification, of affluence. I sat down with co-founder and executive director Stephanie Francis. She said she was met with a lot of skepticism initially. We went to community members and said, hey, we're excited about this. What do you think about the model? We want to we wanna get your input. And I'm just going to say, very, you're a white lady. Yeah, yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, and legitimately so. They said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who the hell are you? And coffee is this first, you know, one of the first indicators of gentrification. And that's a real, real, real concern and and reality for people who've been living in this neighborhood for a long time. What did you say? (laughs) And how did they react? (laughs) So we said, let's work together, you know, creating a model and making sure that this empowers people in this neighborhood to build power, to build wealth, to build skills. These are year-long apprenticeships, right? Yeah. So, um, is they're, it minimum wage or no above minimum wage? So they're tipped employees, but if you uh, look at their tipped wages, they're anywhere from thirteen to fifteen dollars an hour. What's the success rate? So we're a year and a half in. Um, so we're just seeing results from you know our first cohort, and we've had an it, from those of that have been hired, we've had an eighty percent retention rate, and these are from young people who have a a habit and experience and desire to run and quit. One thing we hear a lot about with gentrification is displacement. People who've lived in a neighborhood in North Denver like this for years or maybe decades are being squeezed out because it's just too expensive. Is that happening to your apprentices and their families? Yeah, so we've had an apprentice who had to go get temporary housing different places each night and then found housing, but it was two-and-a-half-hour bus ride to get here. And so that significantly affected. It's one other additional barrier to finding success here at work. How are you keeping the doors open? Do you make money? Ah, great question. So our model is a social enterprise. So we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we exist for this social mission. Are you staying afloat? 
we have revenues from our coffee house sales that are covering about 70% of total operating costs. Our goal is within five years, we'll be totally self-sustaining here in this entity. Where is that other 30% coming from? That's coming from individual donations, grants. I think about other mission-driven food service. So there was Pizza Fusion on Colfax in Denver. It was a training ground for the formerly homeless, but it closed. And uh, Purple Door Coffee is also in Northeast Denver. They employ young people who've experienced homelessness and One of the founders told the Denver Post last year that it's been a challenging business model. What is the biggest challenge you face? Every day, every decision that we make is really this question of mission or business. There's a tension there, right? Hmm. I truly believe they're interdependent. Um, What's an example of a choice you have to make where you've got to weigh that? (laughs) Right. Something like an apprentice not being able to make their shift because they're experiencing homelessness. And yet you, they're, you on the schedule they're on the schedule. Yeah, we've got to run up. a coffee shop here. And so, you know, we've got to address that in a way that knows that, like, I see you and I know what's going on in your life, and we're here to support you no matter what it takes, and we got to run a coffee shop. So we got to make a plan to get you here. And if you can't get here, we've got to address that before we can have you continue on the schedule. Are you a gentrifier? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, my wife and I bought our home two years ago, um, about 10 blocks from here. And we're not longtime residents in this neighborhood. So by that definition, yes. Yeah. What does that tell you? Or what would you ask other people in your shoes, in other people who self-identify, I guess, as gentrifiers to think about? Gentrification is enormous and complex and it is a, a a deeply dividing experience of our city right now this is something that cannot be done by just one sector of our community it cannot you, you be don't done have illusions that this coffee shop is going this is going to, to solve gentrification no, oh goodness no not at all <laughs> but what i would say is that when you think of bringing businesses and having businesses in these neighborhoods that are traditionally low income and uh, have been sort of disenfranchised or not sort of businesses like this social enterprises need to be an intentional part of our development. Do you hope that there are more brown and black faces leading that? Absolutely. Come back and talk to me in three or four years, Ryan. And if I'm still around here, and leading this, let's have a whole different discussion because if this place exists so that Steph can feel good about running a nonprofit and high five all her friends and you know, that's not accomplishing true community wealth building. The goal that we have here is that these young people will be in and, and are moving up into positions of power, decision making, ownership, and that is the goal. And that is Stephanie Francis, co-founder of Prodigy Coffee House in Northeast Denver. Since we first spoke a little over a year ago, the nonprofit has grown, adding mental health support for its apprentices and a program to train managers. 
Meanwhile, Frankie Rodarte graduated from her apprenticeship. She's now a barista and lives with her family in Swansea. She hopes to become a radio personality. Angel Martinez is working on her GED and is a full-time receptionist. She says Prodigy helped her come out of her shell, and she's focused on raising her new baby girl, Nevea. That's heaven, spelled backwards. The owner of Inc., the coffee shop that sparked protests about gentrification, issued an apology shortly after and committed to educate his employees on the issue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.